Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to wait for the lights out there to come up. I like to see faces. Oh, there they are. So one of the challenges of uh, teaching through an entire book of the Bible is that you, there are some certain passages that as I'm planning out the calendar, I look at and go, ooh, that one's going to be a tough one. Uh, I mean, every week we look at the sections that we break the, the, the material into, the book of Mark in this case, and you try to figure out how, how, what is it saying to us? What did it say to them back then? What are, the, what are the implications for us today? And that's always our starting point, and that's where we want to end. We're implicated by the Scripture. We, are, we find ourselves in the story and how God is interacting with us. But some passages we look at ahead of time and go, this, this one's going to be tough. Why? Because there are things in it that the, the implications are probably pretty profound and, and maybe very difficult for some of the people that are in the room. And uh, the passage today is one of those passages. One of the, there's a phrase in the middle of it where Jesus says that anybody who, who divorces and remarries is committing adultery. And you go, that, that doesn't sound very Christian. That, that sounds really hard. How, how do we... And when you, when you have a passage like this, I wouldn't be surprised if some people were, were reading ahead or they come in and say, well, that's the passage today. I think I, think I need to leave because it, it's hard. I'm not sure where it's going. And this is the reality of Scripture. It's the reality of how, how Mark is telling us what Jesus taught. And normally on, on a Sunday, I start out by, you know, telling a story or something that's going to focus us in on kind of where we're going. And we're not going to do that today. We're just going to jump into the passage. And this is going to be not so much a structured, here are, you know, three points going on, but it's more of we're going to talk about the passage and, and what are the implications and how it, how it plays out. So let's just jump right into the passage and see where it takes us. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Uh, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have them touch him, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Whenever we're looking at a passage of Scripture, one of our challenges is saying, what was going on in that world at that time that we need to grasp? And and then we have to ask ourselves, what was going on in the world that Mark wrote to and was dealing with, which was about 30 years later? And and then we look at our own culture and say, what are the implications for us? We, we, We stand back and try to look at that. And one of the things that's always a challenge is that when we stand here in 2016, we think that our own society and our own culture in some ways is, is unlike any that have existed, and that's for good or bad. And we, we look at situations like the, the health of a family, 
And we look at the culture around us and say, you know, divorce is rampant and, and relationships are just really difficult and it's unlike any time in history and divorce is too easy and, and it is easy, but not always. But if we look at this culture that Jesus was living in, we would have to admit when we understand the culture that divorce was even easier then. It, 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 was, it was not a legal proceeding as such. There were, there were situations within uh, the, the Mosaic law and within the Judeo or the, the Greco-Roman world, ideas of what could happen with a divorce. And divorces were simply not done by a legal system, but by a husband who just decided. And, and different rabbinic, schools of rabbinic thought had different approaches. One said it could be for any reason that has to do with uh, infidelity, or unfaithfulness, and the other said it could be for any reason, period. And all it entailed, according to, and it was mentioned here from Deuteronomy, the the husband writes a a certificate of divorce, and that strictly was a written document that said, I am sending you away, wife, and you are free to remarry, and you will not carry the label of being an adulterer. And, And that's what this letter said, that's what this certificate said. It was that simple. It wasn't giving reasons because the reason could be anything. I don't like the way you looked at me in public. Eh, you're out of here. That's kind of what it could be. It was that simple, and it was strictly at the discretion of a husband. You're gone. I have no need for you. You see, in that culture, at that time, women were really seen as property, not as truly a relationship. It had evolved to that place where just the power of the husband over the wife could say, this is done and you're gone. And literally those words sent her away. That that was the culture. And it became even easier in the broader Greco-Roman world because that could be done by a wife as well. The wife could say to the husband, eh, you're done. We're divorced, period. End of story. There was nothing to wrestle through legally. So so that's one element of the context here. And we we have to grasp the context and really work hard for this passage to make sense. Because this passage across history has been used in a couple of ways. Uh, One way that this has often been used is like a bludgeon to to attack somebody who's gone through a difficult time. And it's a beautiful thing God intended, but we so elevate that that when somebody is truly living out the the horrible incidents of a divorce and the fracturing of a family, that, that we bludgeon them with it and say, you're an adulterer. On the other side, we can be so confident and live so much in the unconditional love and forgiveness of God that, that we forget that he has tough things to say about brokenness and about sin. And somewhere in this passage, there's a middle ground. There, there's a way of understanding both the seriousness of it and understanding the forgiving nature and the fresh start that Jesus offers. And that's always available. And so we're, we're trying to jump into this passage and to really understand what this passage is about. We have to work really, really hard at the context. And the first element of the context is that culture of divorce, which was prevalent. The husband, at a whim, could say, I have no need of you. You are gone. And by default back then, the children stayed with the husband. But the woman was free to remarry, and she didn't have to bear the label of being an adulterer. The husband never had that label. It was always the spouse. It was always the wife. And now she's free to remarry. This certificate of divorce that that the Pharisees mention here, which is from Deuteronomy 24, was not a statement of causes or reasons or justifications. It was just, how do you protect her in this situation so she isn't instantly destitute or homeless? So, So that was the culture. Another interesting thing about the context is we look right at the beginning when it says Jesus then left that place 
and went into the region of Judea. And we have to remind ourselves, what was that place? What did we just leave? What just happened in the passage before and in Jesus' interaction with his disciples? He had just gone through this place where the, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Remember, if you were here, who was the greatest? Who's the greatest of the disciples? Because they had this faulty understanding of the kingdom and of the Messiah. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And, and we know by watching them through the first nine chapters of Mark that, that none of them were the greatest. They, they, they expressed great failure in what it meant to learn from Jesus and follow Jesus. And, and that place was a place of failure. And they're saying who's the greatest. And, and Jesus took the opportunity to teach them and define for them a new way of thinking about greatness. And he said, if anybody wants to be first, they must be last and the servant of all. And we have this scenario where he brought a child in front of them and said, anybody who welcomes one like this welcomes me. And it doesn't just welcome me, he welcomes the one who sent me. And we discovered it wasn't uh, the child the way we see children in our culture. Remember, our, our, our culture is pretty child-centric. We, we, we really boost the nature of who children are, because children are about, about potential, about the future, and they're innocent, and they're humble. And in that culture, children were the lowest of the low. They were the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder. They were the ones without honor and without status and without power. And Jesus said, you have to welcome ones like that. You have to serve ones like that if you truly want to be great. So Jesus redefined greatness. He also redefined, we learned in that passage, redefined the the essence of, of community relationships. Uh, how our relationships should be, should be uh, identified by, by peace and, and fellowship rather than opposition and strife. And, and we learn that those relationships should be lived out in sacrifice and service. And that our focus should be the, the sin in our own lives, not pointing out the problems of those around us. That's what he, he taught last week. And if we think about it, we, we have to say to ourselves, looking ahead to this passage, that, well, that kind of living in relationship, that understanding of, of greatness, of service and sacrifice, that plays out in, in every relationship. That means it plays out in marriage, or it, it should. And so into that context, it says these Pharisees came to Jesus, and it says they were wanting to test him. And we need to understand this wasn't just, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's have a theological debate about divorce. Uh, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the, the obvious answer was, well, yeah, duh, because it happens all the time, and there's a legal justification for it. It said they were, about, they were trying to test him, but they, they weren't trying to have a conversation. It, really, they were trying to trap him. And to understand the nature of what they're really asking, we have to go way back to the very beginning of the book of Mark. When someone else was on the scene in the Jordan area, which is now where Jesus is. And who was at the Jordan? It was John the Baptist. And why was John the Baptist killed? Because he dared to point out to Herod and Herod's wife that their relationship, their marriage was not valid because she was actually, before the divorce and the remarriage, she was actually the wife of Herod's half-brother and all this really convoluted soap opera kind of story. And John the Baptist dared to point out that their marriage was invalid. It should not be. It's not what God wants. And so what did Herodias, the wife, do? She basically manipulated the situation to have John beheaded. So if you're the Pharisees, who we've seen throughout the first part of Mark, are people who are intent on having Jesus killed, and we also know that one of the ways they were doing that is by being collaborators with the Herodians, the supporters of Herod, you ask a question like this of Jesus in this area, you're basically saying, we got you no matter how you answer. 
If you come out and you say, like John did, that you are totally against divorce and that it is wrong and not what God wants, then the, the Herodians can come get you and politically get you out of the way, just like they did John. If you say something different, like it's no big deal, then, then you're in opposition to the teaching of John, who, who you have said was this great prophet, and if you're in agreement, not in agreement with him, you must be a moral compromiser. And so who's going to listen to you? Either way, we think we win. And so Jesus kind of turns it on him. He says, well, what did Moses command you? And they gave kind of a wimpy answer. They didn't got to a command. They said, well, Moses permitted that a man could issue a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Jesus then says, let's go back further. That may have been what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. But let's go back prior to that. Prior to Moses writing that and permitting that. Let's go back to what did God mean in creation? What did God intend at creation? What did he command at creation? It says he made them male and female. And and for this reason, the two will become together. They become one They will be united. The man will leave his family and will cling to or be united to his wife. And the language there is really this idea of like glue. They're going to be stuck like glue. You're going to take these two things that are completely distinct, and now they're one new entity. That was God's design. Jesus was basically saying, what what God has put together, you guys shouldn't rip apart. And remember, everything was done at the impetus of the husband. He had complete control of the situation because his woman was like property and she could be cast aside for no reason at all. And Jesus says, that's not how God intended it. He intended that in this amazing relationship that is rooted in faithfulness and trust and mutuality and equality to change the world, to be a place of living out holy lives. It was this beautiful thing. God said, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is great. It was a covenant. But you guys have turned it into a contract. You guys have turned this into something, and it's because of your hard-heartedness. You've completely left aside what God intended and made this a contract that you can, even a one-sided contract, it's unilateral. You can break it because she did something you didn't like. That's not what God wanted. That's not what he intended. He intended this beautiful, mutual thing, and you've made it this hierarchy of power. That's not what God intended. And you have destroyed it. And the reason that Moses made this law and made this command is because you had completely changed what God intended by the way you live. And Moses basically wrote this new law that says, okay, divorce is rampant, but these women are homeless. They're destitute. They've lost everything because you've decided on a whim. You don't want them anymore. So we have to protect the women somehow by by writing this thing that says you are free to remarry and you are not carrying the label of adulterer. And so it was kind of a lesser of evils. Somehow to bring something beneficial so this woman doesn't live in homelessness and had some chance for a future. That's why Moses wrote this law. What's interesting, we don't get anything here about the response of the Pharisees. It doesn't say they were mad. It doesn't say anything about when they went away. But it, but it does say then that when they went into the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about it. Because what they had just heard was something completely different than their entire experience. And they go in the house, and we've seen that pattern before. Jesus teaches something. They come to him later by themselves. They can explain that. And the disciples asked Jesus, he said, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. 
And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And this is so crazy because we've seen Jesus has interacted with the Pharisees before and dealt with issues of the law, like the Sabbath law. It seems like Jesus saw that very differently than they did. And, and he freed them in some of that from what the one thing that was kind of easy deal. And Jesus is saying something completely different and more difficult. See, I think we have to remember in this passage that Jesus is not making this statement to find ways to accuse people of adultery. He's making this statement to build up, once again, the nature of the permanence of marriage in God's design, in God's intent. He's making that a very specific point. God designed it for this, and you've turned it into this. Because remember the scenario. We have to remember this context again. Who is Jesus talking to initially? This, he was countering people who were in opposition to him. These were people who hated him and wanted to see him dead. They were absolutely in opposition to who he was and what he stood for, and they are trying to trap him. This was not a situation of pastoral care. This was not somebody coming to him saying, I've lost everything and my husband sent me away. What do I do? Well, you're an adulterer. No. That's not the context. Because we've seen that context before. We saw it with the woman at the well, right? And he looks at the woman and says, you've been married five times and the, one, the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband. Divorce was so rampant in that culture and as I said before, the children stayed with the husband and it resulted in a ton of most every family in that culture was blended. All kinds of children from different marriages. And so when we see this statement, you've been married five other times and you're not even married to the one you're living with now, that... that that kind of gives a different picture of that, knowing the context. And he showed compassion on her. We had the woman that was caught in adultery, right? And they were ready to execute her by stoning. And it said, he basically said, let the one that's without sin cast the first stone. And they all left. And Jesus helps this woman up. And he says, I don't accuse you either. Now go and sin no more. This passage, his audience was against a bitter opponent. And he is basically saying, you guys have missed the point. You're thinking about what Moses permits. I want to talk about what God intended. What was the purpose behind it? They were looking at the law as they do everything else. And at marriage, they do everything else. So what's that line we can walk up to? What's allowable? What can I get away with? They were looking at marriage from the end and saying, how do we end it right? Jesus said, I'm talking about the beginning. I'm talking about what should be our focus and our desire and our drive in a marriage relationship. They were talking about two completely different things. Jesus was answering a better opponent. Also, we have to keep in mind this whole idea of what we learned last week, which was the last will be first and the first will be last, right? The one who wants to be greatest has to be servant of all. That plays out in every relationship. That plays out in marriage, Also in this passage, it never talks about legitimate grounds for divorce. It doesn't talk about that at all. There are places in Scripture, this is just talking about what God's intention is, how he wants it to be, what he meant it to be, and that should be our focus. It's about God's will for marriage. This is not a passage about rules for divorce. And so we need to discover what God's intentions are versus... How do you end it? 
Now, the, now the challenge in this passage, and one of the interesting things I think about this, this interaction with the disciples and how what this would have caught them so completely off guard. Mark doesn't go into it, but the, the version of this in Matthew, it says when the disciples heard this, they basically said, well, if that's the reality between husbands and wives, why would we get married? Because we're used to this position of authority and status and power, where at our discretion, we can send a wife away. And when Jesus makes a very radical statement in here, he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And that was unheard of in that culture. Because as I said before, in these situations, when the woman goes out, she carries the title of adulterer. Not the husband. He's innocent. Jesus saying, no. Because God's intent was mutuality and equality and faithfulness and trust and accountability and covenant, which is partners. The disciples were still living in the old understanding of the kingdom, which is one of power and position. And so when Jesus says, no, 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 it's not just she who would have adultery, it would be you too. But once again, the purpose wasn't to label somebody as an adulterer, it was to elevate the idea. What's interesting is what happens next. It says people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, to bless them. But it says the disciples rebuked them. Now, once again, we have to go back to last week's message, where where what happened? We're talking about true greatness, or we're talking about to be first, you have to be last and the servant of all. And Jesus' object lesson was this little kid that was there and said, you... You need to welcome these little ones, the ones without honor, the ones without status. And now he's basically saying, remember, if you don't welcome them, it'd be better if if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. That's how much and how serious Jesus was about this. You have to welcome these. These are the ones you have to serve. To be great is not up here to be served, but to serve others. That's what it takes. You have to get down low to serve. And, And what do the disciples do? The first opportunity when children come to see Jesus, and remember their view of children is they have nothing to offer. They are the lowest of the low. They do not have honor. They do not have status. And little children were coming. They were being brought to Jesus and they rebuked them. No children allowed here. This is not your place. They they missed the point, right? This was their chance to put into practice what Jesus had so clearly taught them about greatness and about the first and last and the servant of all. And they missed the opportunity. And now it goes even farther where where Jesus says, unless you become like one of these, unless you become little and ones without honor and ones without power and ones without status, if you aren't like that, the kingdom is not yours. That's the only way to be in the kingdom. It's very interesting that this is, this is the, the illustration that comes right after this talk about marriage. And, and it was a general idea about greatness and servant of all and the first will be last. Is right before that statement about marriage. Because I don't think Jesus would have gone back to the beginning to talk about the intention. God's desire and his passion for what a marriage should be, he wouldn't have gone back that far. He could have stayed in the legal realm of what is or okay is or isn't okay and the finer points of legalism. But he went to, this is the intention, and he was willing to talk about the intention. Why? Because in the kingdom, in the upside-down kingdom that he has inaugurated, in the Holy Spirit-empowered life of his people, that kind of relationship is possible. 
And this idea of what does it mean to become like the little ones, that, that, that's the antidote. That's the antidote to the, the marriages that are being unraveled and falling apart. The, the way we try to live out that life that Jesus called us to, where a new way of greatness and a new way of living in service and sacrifice and living in peace and fellowship rather than strife and opposition. The only way to do that is if, if both partners or everybody that's part of a community comes together and says, how do we get low together? How do we serve each other sacrificially together? How do we, how do we enter into life that way? That, that's the antidote to the power structure. That's the way to achieve the mutuality and the, and the equality and the trust and the accountability that God intended is to live that way together. And this is, this is a glorious picture of, of the possibility of living life in the kingdom of God in a relationship, a marriage relationship that God intended and it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that we need to aspire to in our marriages And yet, all of us know someone or our own selves where that isn't how it's played out. Where we have relationships that have just been ripped apart by all kinds of things. The destructive nature of just how humans work together and, and trying to exhibit power or take power and all, all these things that go on. And, and we end up having these relationships ripped apart that, that God painted such a beautiful picture of. And, and most of us, when we had our wedding vows, we talked about forever. And we talked about mutuality. And we talked about this vision. And that's what we want. And yet we often end up here in the valley of, of, of destructiveness. And our great hope is that God meets us there. Because his, his love is unconditional and he is absolutely forgiving. And so we live in this tension of, just like everything with the kingdom of God, there's this, there's this goal, there's this aspiration, there's what the Holy Spirit can empower us with. And think about these types of situations. We always have to remember that real people with real pain and real challenges exist in them. This is not just abstract theological debate. This is reality. Part of the things we have to, to wrestle through as a church, as individuals, is uh, what are we doing to strengthen families? What are we doing to make sure marriages are, are solid and built and, and people are striving to have that, that mutuality and that let's together and let's, let's outserve and sacrifice each other because that's how we save marriages. And then how do we come alongside people who are living in the reality of things that have been ripped apart? You see, when Jesus emphasizes the permanence of marriage, he's, he's talking about things that over the last few decades sociologists have come to understand, which is that when you are married together for a certain amount of time, or maybe you spent 15 years together, or 20 years together, or 10 years together, you can't ever completely be separate. Legally, things may have been separated, and property may have been distributed, and we have visitation rights, and there's a legal distinction, but, but lives that have spent that much time together can't ever be fully pulled away. There's always something there. It's like planting two different plants in a pot. And over time, their roots just kind of become connected and, and their stalks may even you know, kind of intertwine and impress how the other one grows. And you, you could work hard to unwrap that and pull that out, but the imprint is still there. 
it's still real. It's still lasting. It never fully goes away for, for good or for bad. And, and, and there are children in the picture potentially. Or what do we do with the photo album? So those things are there. And it causes pain. And it causes struggle and heartache. Agging over what could have been or what should have been and versus what is. The amazing thing is, is that the God we serve, the God who loves us and knows us by name, knows all of that. And he knows that that at times our hard-heartedness, as Jesus called it, gets in the way of what God's desire is for it and what his his intention was for marriage. And it happens. We all know people where life has been racked by those things. We also know people that we thought for sure that the marriage was gone and and hopeless and and somehow through work it's, it's become something different and something more beautiful. And we know that happens too, but it doesn't happen all the time. And so as a church, as people in family, as people in relationships, as individuals who follow Christ, we want to put so much effort into to building strong marriages. We, we want to look at Jesus' words when he basically looked at the, at the Pharisees and said, you guys are focusing on the wrong thing. You've turned this beautiful covenant into a contract. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's not talk about how we end it. Let's go to the beginning on what God meant. Let's go for that. Let's, let's put our energies into that. Let's strive after that. And when things don't get to that, I am there with you in that valley. Offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. And as the title of this whole series is, that, that chance for a great beginning. This, is, this whole book is about fresh starts. Look at these disciples, how many times they missed the mark, missed the point. But, but Jesus said, let's, let's try that again. And it's the same thing here. God, God doesn't like that marriages end that way, but he loves to give life out of something that died. And we live in that tension. And we live in that hope, and we live in that that beauty that that's who God is. As I said at the beginning, this is is one of those tough passages to deal with. Because it's so easy to to go to one or the other extreme and beat people up over the horrible pain that they've gone through, somehow claiming biblical authority of it, or, or to excuse all elements of brokenness or sin, just say, yeah, God just overlooks that. No, no, he has ideals and goals for us that he, he wants us to live in. Why? Because that's best. But in the middle of it, when, when what's best doesn't play out in reality, in the valley of life, Jesus says, but there's an opportunity again for what's best. Let's take you from where you are now and grow through that and live through that and have life through that. What, what a glorious hope we have in Jesus the glorious life he offers, even when things fall apart, he is there to be with us in a fresh start and a new beginning and great opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, you know, I, I always struggle being people who know you so well and know your grace and your love and forgiveness. We, we just want to jump to that. And, and, and we are so grateful that that is always there and that's always available and it's always possible. But at the same time, we, we so easily can forget that, that you have established what you want things to be like. You created marriage for something particular, and, and in, in our hard-heartedness, none of us have ever accomplished that. And Laura and I have been married 33 years, and there have been so many times we, we, we could have ended it. 
we could have walked away and, and, and somehow we, we didn't. But, but there were so many moments where it was beyond what you had painted for us. That it was beyond your ideal it was, or, or way beneath your ideal, but in the middle of it you've helped us grow. And Father, in this room people are in all kinds of situations. People are still dealing with the, the heartache and the ravages of, of a broken marriage. And for them, we pray for an incredible glimpse into your mercy. We pray for a, a fresh breath of your Holy Spirit in their life to give hope and to uh, offer grace and to give strength to, to seek again the great things that you want in their life. And Father, for, for those that are boy, in, in the struggle right now, and, and think things are hopeless. We, we, we pray that both people in that relationship would, would seek how they might outserve one another, to, to, to see at work your best. And Father, for those that look and say, hey, our marriage is perfect and healthy, help us know it's not, that we always need to be working and we always need to be evaluating and we always know that we're falling short of what your ideal was. But thank you for the hope. Thank you for the picture you paint of your kingdom, which is amazing, and of a marriage which is beautiful, and for the times that fall short of that, which is most every day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for fresh starts, even when there didn't seem to be hope. Father, we pray these things about every relationship we have in our life, that we would enter them with a new understanding of greatness, of service and sacrifice. We pray that we would we see the community around us as people desperately in need of you and that, that we could just walk into that and, and show who you are and who your mercy is and be agents of forgiveness. Father, thank you for each person in this room, for where they are on the journey with you. Help us all find our hope and confidence in you. Help us seek to live kingdom lives in a ways that are, that are cross-shaped and humble. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who makes all of this possible. Amen.